The passage on which today's teaching is based is uh, Ephesians chapter 5. It's also printed in your bulletins. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, where if you're new or visiting, we're going through the book of Ephesians since January, and for the last six weeks, we've been looking at marriage. And for single people here, um, how is it applicable to you? It's absolutely applicable. It's why we're actually intentionally doing this and rounding this out in the month of September, um, because it's important to prepare and to prepare yourself. There's a tremendous amount of responsibility, um, even as you get into a relationship. Only Christians think that way. Christians take relationships very seriously. Uh, we have a very relational father, a very relational God. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read from verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And this is God's word. This sermon today is really an extension of last week's sermon. We talked about gender roles. It's a very dicey topic for pastors. They get themselves into a lot of trouble. And we, we got through the hardest part of it yes, last week. And so we're going to get through. We're going to round it out. There's a lot more to say. So we're going to conclude today. Verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then in verse 25, Paul says, uh, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So in both husbands and wives, they're looking to Christ and they're saying, You are going to demonstrate Christ in very particular ways. It doesn't mean that the husband can't respect the wife. It doesn't mean that the wife shouldn't love her husband. But there are very specific emphases that Paul is making towards the husband directly and towards the wife directly. Keep in mind, ancient societies, they always depressed women. Women had no status in ancient societies. But here, Paul goes against society. He goes against culture and he says, the husbands, you need to earn the trust of your wife by loving her. And wives, in response, you must submit to your husband. Why? And it's because the Bible does not conform to modern impressions of masculinity or femininity based on current societal views or sociological views or even physiological views. The Bible is addressing a biblical femininity. It's not something that comes naturally. 
is something that's supernatural. The Bible is addressing a biblical femininity, a biblical masculinity. And so Paul says males and females, men and women, they have distinct obligations based on their design, how God has created them. They have distinct obligations. They have distinct gifts. They have distinct roles in marriage. Now, if you're here last week, we addressed all of them in a general way with examples, but I wanted to take the time to conclude what this passage teaches us about gender roles. And it says four things. One, what are they? What they are. Two, the problems that come with it. Thirdly, the freedoms that we experience in it. And lastly, the mystery of it. Ooh, right? Uh, What they are, problems, freedoms, the mystery. First, we're going to look at what they are. There are two roles. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Last week we said head in in the Greek. Paul's talking about uh, when he says the husband is the head of the wife. He literally means authority. Now, I know there are people here who were here last week. They're already starting to cringe. It means authority, source, but it also means power. God wants us to hear. The air conditioner just turned off, okay? Uh, It also means power, influence. In the book of Genesis, when God put man on earth, the first order of business that man had was to name the animals. Why? It's because to name something is to have authority over it. That's why we name our children. If you're in business or in finance, you have projects. You name your projects. It's to take ownership, to have authority over it. God places man on earth to rule. He says, you are here. I want you to rule the earth. Subdue the earth, he says. Why? That's why Adam names the animals. He's taking authority. He's taking ownership. Eve was created out of Adam. Eve was born out of Adam. And when Adam meets Eve, he says, this is, born, this is, this is a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, you This woman, this completely opposite person that God has designed and created actually completes me. When I meet this person, when Adam encounters Eve, he says, this person has shown me in paradise, in paradise where there's no need, before sin ever entered the world, God says, it's not good. In perfect paradise, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so when Adam meets Eve in paradise, before sin ever enters the world, Adam says, I realized by meeting you, I was incomplete. I realized by meeting you, I'm not complete. And so before sin ever entered the world, there was family. Before sin ever entered the world, there was marriage. Before sin ever entered the world, there was husband and wife. And God, what he did was, when he creates man and woman, he took his attributes His communicable attributes, these are the things that we can all acquire. Things like love and respect, honor, the skills, the creativity, the wisdom that we can all garner by growing and living and working, our ability to create things. God took his communicable attributes and he divided it. He didn't just put it all into one person to make them wholly complete in themselves. He divided them between man and woman. You were designed that way. Now, sociology has been saying this. Centuries, they've been talking about the difference between men and women, but the Bible affirms that. And he says, men have been designed a certain way. Women have been designed with certain attributes and gifts. These are the communicable attributes of God. And they're two distinct opposite beings so that one person would complete the other when they come together. This way, only together, now alone, you can wholly bear the image of God in your own complete way without any need. 
If you're single, there are people who believe they're called to be single for all time. And the thing is, they can. They are not in sin. They can wholly complete the bearing of God's image on their own. God has created you to be that way. And yet when Adam meets Eve, he says, I was complete. And yet when I meet you, this complete opposite of me, I'm incomplete. That together, man and woman could bear the image of God in a wholly new way, in an even more complete way, in a very special way. Now, Adam says, I'm complete. And God says, you are going to rule the world. You're going to subdue the earth. And so he names the animals because if you think about it, um, before he named these animals, where were they? They were running wild. Now, what's Adam doing? He's following the pattern of God as creator. God, day after day, takes, creates order out of nothing. And so what does God do? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first line of the book of Genesis. Now the earth was formless and empty. But then what God does, he says, let there be light. And he says, the first day, he says, he called the light day, and he called the night, or the darkness, night. Right? That's what he did. He's naming. What's God doing? He's claiming authority over this nothingness that has become something out of his creation. He's claiming authority and ownership because he is the king. And in the same way that Adam is following in this pattern, and what he does is he starts to name the animals. He's taking this disorder, this chaos, animals running wild, and now he's claiming authority, ownership. He's subduing the earth. He's establishing order. He's bearing God's image. Now, when God changes someone's life, if you see this in the Bible, if you've read the Bible quite a bit, you, you'll see these patterns. When God changes someone's life, what does he do? Oftentimes, their name changes. And so you have Abram turning to Abraham. You have Sarai turning to Sarah. You have Saul turning into Paul, right? So even as God continuing on in, in that same pattern, as he creates order in your life out of the chaos, by redesigning you, making you new, you have a new name. He's claiming that's what happens when he brings you under his kingship. Now, He's not just your savior, he's your king. He is your Lord. You see that? Adam, when he meets Eve, he names his wife. There's authority. But Eve is not silent. When God looked at Adam and saw that he was alone and said, This is not good, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, when we think about helper, we said last week, we think like assistant, an admin, or something like that. But the thing is, that's not the word that God is using here. In fact, it's not a passive word. The word helper is a very sophisticated word. It's almost only and always used of God in the Bible. So when Eve was created to be Adam's helper, that meant that she has certain types of power, gifts, resources that Adam doesn't have. And so if she uses them right, they can empower Adam. They can enable Adam to be more of who he is so that both together become complete. In other words, without Eve, Adam is lost. Without Eve, Adam doesn't really even know himself fully. So when Adam meets Eve, this is the bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. What he's saying is, I have found a missing piece that I didn't even know was missing. And so now that I've encountered you, I realize I've learned more about who I really am. I know myself more fully. And Eve can know herself more fully in Adam. Now, if Eve abuses that gift because she has gifts, special gifts, 
only she has them. If she, if she takes that gift and she abuses that power, she can subvert Adam. She can try to replace Adam. She can take over Adam. And that goes not necessarily just against Adam. That goes against God's design. They were intended to be complete as one. And so to help Adam is to have power. It's to have confidence, but also a humility, meekness. Who else do you know has perfect courage and perfect humility, perfect power and perfect humility? It's God. That's how Eve demonstrates the qualities of God. Eve is literally choosing when she could easily replace Adam, do away with Adam and subvert Adam. She is putting herself underneath somebody and running her power through that person with a resource that that person doesn't have. Oftentimes, that's what's described of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what? An empowerer, an encourager, a comforter. By the way, the word comforter in Latin is not like, oh, I feel so bad for you. Let me comfort you. It's the word comforte, which is what? With forte. Music majors, with strength, with power, right? Now, modern sociologists will say that men develop their identity through work more often than women. And modern sociologists will also tell you that women, by nature, are more relational than men. On the average, whether or not you agree or disagree, right? But think about this. What's more important? Is it more important to be excellent at your job? Or is it more important to be relational in an excellent way? And the answer is neither, right? Neither are more important. They're both important. Sociologists will say that men develop relationships to achieve. Whereas women achieve to develop relationships, right? To develop deeper relationships. Now, again, whether or not you agree, the point is that even worldly stereotypes of men and women revolve around this concept of a complement. Two opposites that, if come together in partnership, become one and perfect. In a way, relational complements are everywhere in the Bible. You'll see that everywhere, right? You see it throughout the book of Ephesians, for that matter. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians for the past year, and uh, what does Paul say in Ephesians 4? That, me- that people have particular gifts. Men and women, in chapter 5, have particular gifts. Ephesians 4, Paul says, all of our gifts are used to communicate the Word of God. So that's why he says that no one person is independent. Some are called to be apostles. You remember that passage, Ephesians 4? Some are called to be apostles. Some are called to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. They all work to bring people under the ministry of the Word, to communicate the Word of God in a very special and particular way. If you're alone, there's an imbalance. There's a complete imbalance. They need to be completed by someone, which is why we need all of those gifts in the church to wholly communicate the Word of God in a faithful way. So if you're a gifted teacher, you need a gifted evangelist to partner with. If you're a gifted pastor, you need a gifted apostle. That's somebody who has vision, somebody who's a vision caster, right? And that means that husbands, brass tacks, what does that mean? Husbands, you need to partner with your wife. That means you need to listen to your wife. That means you need to love your wife. And wives, you need to respect the authority of your husband 
especially, particularly when there is an impasse, when there's a lack of clarity, when there's a lack of uncertainty. When he is afraid to move forward, you be his strength. When he is afraid, when he lacks courage, you be that courage. When he is, is being foolish, you be the wisdom. That requires conflict. That requires arguments. That requ- it's not unusual to fight, that means. In our sinful and broken world, that's how we do it, right, in some ways. But the idea is that will then uh, the wife choose, instead of subverting the husband, to voluntarily run her power through her husband and submit to her husband. And husbands, will you earn then that respect? It's not given to you because you deserve it. You can't even demand it. That's not what God says in his word. He never says you need to demand it. You need to earn it. You need to earn that trust, earn that respect. You can't just um, do whatever you want, husbands. You need to earn the respect of your wives. You need to love your wives. Wives, that means you can challenge. Husbands, it means you can challenge. But if you look at this passage, and we've covered this over the last five weeks, so without having to rehash it, Paul says to love is to cleanse with the word, right, with the washing of the word, right? Uh, But it also means to feed, just like you would take care of your own body, Paul says. And so that means that you would care for this person. You would feed this person, nurture this person. Consider their growth as more important than yours. That's what they are. That's the, those are the gifts. Now, here's the problem. Genesis chapter 3, in the earlier part of uh, Genesis, the first book in the Bible, because sin has entered the world, because man chose to rebel against God, because of our sin, both the man's authority and the woman's help has become cursed. That's what's happened. It's not that the design is flawed, so don't do away with the design. If anything, we're called as believers to restore that design. But because of sin, the husband and the wife's exercise of their roles are oftentimes broken. So in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, God says to Adam, what does he say to Adam? Cursed is the ground. You will toil. I'm paraphrasing. He says you are going to toil, you are going to labor, but the ground that you work is going to produce thorns and thistles for you. You're going to sweat. By the sweat of your brow, you will labor, and then you're going to die. That's essentially what God says to to Adam. But then to Eve, he says, you will have pain in childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Notice, the curse that God gives to Adam and the curse that he gives to Eve are different. They're not the same curse. They were designed differently. Their gifts, the emphasis of their gifts are different. And so the curse is different. When God looks at Adam, he says, your work, your ability to subdue the earth, your ability to rule, your ability to achieve is cursed. He says, you're going to work, but it's never going to get you what you're actually looking for in life. That's what he says. But to the woman, what does he say? He says, you're going to want your husband. You're going to want your husband to love you. You're going to want that love, that deep personal love. And instead, you know what you're going to get? Your husband is going to rule over you. In other words, husbands, men, right? That's why it's applicable to all of us, right? Uh, Your work, your success, among all the other things 
you're going to get hung up a lot by your work and your success. It's going to rule you. Women, your husband, your desire for your husband, that relational desire that you have is going to rule over you. So on one hand, the differences between a husband and a wife make them great. But on the other hand, those differences will ruin you if they become, if you're stuck on them, if that's what you're going for. So husbands are just working and working and working, and things fail. Well, I'm going to work harder and work harder. It's going to fail. You're going to work harder and harder. And what happens eventually, even if you succeed, it's never going to get what you're looking for, and then you're going to die. That's the curse. That's what our sin has done. What we've been designed to be has now gone off the rails, and that's what happens. Women, you want to love and love, and you're going to give, and you're going to give, and you're going to give, and you're going to want, and you're going to want, and you're going to want, and you're going to expect things, and you're not going to receive it. Instead, you're going to get the other side of it. Sometimes you're going to feel oppressed. Sometimes you're going to feel trapped. Sometimes you're going to feel suffocated. You're going to give up things you never wanted to give up. And then what happens? Right? He says you're going to fall. You're going to die. Paul in Ephesians 5 says this as a result. Husbands, love your wife. Restore that brokenness. Love your wives. Be and provide what she was designed to receive. Be that. That means if you don't do that, and if you don't practice that, even as single adults, to mature into that, that takes tremendous sacrifice, tremendous giving. That means you have to be prepared to give up, sacrifice your dreams, your vision, the things that you wanted in life, even your work, because it's going to fail you. But you're going to love your wife. You're going to pour into your wife. Wise, what that means is that you have thoughts, you have visions, you have dreams. But Paul says, will you even put those things aside and choose to voluntarily submit to your husband? Reverse the curse. Wives, submit to your husband. Another way of saying that is men, will you become more relational? Okay, you know, a lot of us we were in that way of we're in the habit of saying, "Well, that's just how I am. That's just how I'm built." Right? Will you be able to forsake that? That's how you're naturally built. But we're talking about making all things new here. Supernaturally, can you become more relational? We're talking about a biblical masculinity that moves towards his wife with a great love. Now, on one hand, verse 26, it's a love that addresses flaws. He says, you're going to cleanse her with the watering of the word, right? And he kind of defines that to make her radiant, to make her holy, to make her blameless, right? But two, he says, verse 29, you're going to love your wife. You're going to feed your wife. You're going to care for your wife. You're going to give. That means it's going to take tremendous sacrifice as you would feed and care for yourself. All those things that you say, well, I need to do this for myself. The apostle Paul says, forget that. And give, almost look to your wife and see what she needs and give it to her. Restore the brokenness there. Be relational. Biblical femininity says you have tremendous gifts, women. You have tremendous gifts, tremendous strengths. Will you use those gifts to submit to your husband? And place those gifts under your husband and empower your husband through them. 
so that they will be enabled, they will be empowered, they will rule better. Can you do that? Nowhere in this text or any other text in the Bible does it say, women, you are weaker. Nowhere does it say, women, you are more foolish. Nowhere does it say you are lesser. Nowhere does it say you are more sinful. Nowhere does it say you are more incomplete than your husband. That means you can challenge your husband, argue, fight, but in the end, can you voluntarily run your power through them? Submit to them. Not because they're wiser, you're going to make them wiser. Not because they're stronger, you're going to make them stronger. Out of reverence for Christ, he says. Because you trust that God has brought you together and you're committed to that because he is committed to you and he is faithful to you. No matter what situation you are in, no matter where you're at. Now, there are caveats there. If you're being abused, if there's tremendous abuse going on in the home, that's a different issue. That's not what Paul's addressing here. That has to be addressed. That has to be called out. Right? No matter what kind of abuse there is. So there are caveats. And there are, you know, throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, there are, there are qualifiers for divorce. But really what this passage is saying here is on one hand, uh, women are challenged not to be desperate and over-dependent on another person. Be strong. So on one hand, you know, there, it's not unquestioned obedience it's not deference to your husband. It's more like a ballroom dance. If you've ever done the waltz, there's a leader and a counter, right? They come together and they become one, right? Is any one person better? Is any one person stronger in that relationship there, in that dance? No. In that dance, you need both. Both are equal. They have to be equal or else you, there's an imbalance. They both have to be equal. You need to be equal. But they're voluntary opposites that merge and become one beautiful, graceful entity. On the other hand, men, you are challenged to have a relational authority. It's not about, it's not about oppression. It's a relational authority. Not to be a selfish tyrant. That means you have to protect your wives from becoming too dependent on you and yet at the same time protect your wives so that they're growing well, that their needs are more important than your perceived needs. Their desires, their pursuits, their freedoms are top priority over your own desires, uh, pursuits, and your freedoms. Wives, you have to protect your husbands from becoming tyrants in some ways. You have to call them out, challenge their authority at times. You're going to have to fight, right, but never subvert. Never replace. This way, your, the idols of the husband, the brokenness of the husband, the brokenness of the wife doesn't overtake each other. So that's the problem. And there is a biblical prescription for that. Thirdly, we have the freedom in it. What's the freedom? Notice the text doesn't tell wives to love their husbands. Even though other places in the Bible, wives are called. We're called to love each other, Right? It doesn't say here, husbands, respect your wives. That doesn't mean don't ever respect them. There are plenty of passages in the scripture where it talks about honoring and respecting one another. It's about emphasis. In verse 21, the text tells both husbands and wives to submit to each other, but then it tells the wives to submit again in verse 22, specifically, all by themselves. Both of them are called to respect. Both are called to love. 
Both are called to feed and cleanse each other. Lots of places in the Bible say that, but what Paul's saying here is that both of you are designed with particular roles, particular gifts, and because of these gifts, you have particular obligations. Now remember, these differences between men and women, as I said before, they've been intuitively understood for centuries in every culture in the world throughout history. But the problem is every secular worldview, every worldly view establishes merely stereotypical roles of the male and the female. What the Bible does is this. The Bible says, yes, there are roles. Yes, there are obligations, but they're not stereotyped. Biblical femininity, biblical masculinity is much more nuanced, is much more complex. What does the world say about our women today? Is what many churches have twisted the Bible in some ways to say about women, that women are weaker, that women are less valuable, right? The Bible says no. In fact, the early church was flooded with women. Why do you think that was? It's because the Bible and God's word and the church embraced women in a society that did not embrace women in the same way. Women had rights in the church. Women had value and standing in the church. Now, Take a look at uh, someone like Esther. Esther, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, there is Esther. She became queen in the most powerful empire to date in a culture that didn't believe in God at all. And she became queen, how? Because she was pretty. Because she was beautiful. So she had all the comforts of life, everything that a person could want because of her beauty. And if you think about it, That's us in society today. That's how we are today. That's what we desire. We make an idol out of the feminine stereotype that all they amount to, their sense of worth is basically equivalent to or comparable to or proportional to their beauty, their outer beauty, right? That's how we stereotype women. And yet God uses Esther, right, this beautiful woman who has come in and earned all these things. So it almost looks like the Bible's affirming it, and yet if you read the book of Esther, it absolutely does not affirm the, mod- the modern stereotypes of, of beauty and outer uh, physical uh, beauty, right? God uses Esther to save his people and destroy these evil forces that are plotting to destroy God's people. And so you know what Esther does? The beautiful queen who earned through her looks This entire empire, she forsakes her comfort. She forsakes her comfort. She goes against that stereotype. In those days, in ancient times, women were silent. She goes against that stereotype. Now remember, in in her day, if if a woman were to speak up inappropriately, they could be executed, especially to the king. They could be executed. And what Esther does is she risks her life to convince the most powerful man in the world to date of betrayal and evil that he didn't discover, right? He didn't have the wisdom to see it. And so she has to negotiate. She has to coordinate. She has to be strategic. She has to plan. And she goes in prayer. And she has, she's humbled. And she forsakes. It's a famous phrase. She says, if I perish I perish, she says. Esther does not conform to the traditional view of femininity. Esther could have saved herself. Esther could have latched on to the the visible power in her life, right? 
to find that wealthy person, latch onto them and say, I can take care of myself. This is how I'll save myself. She could have done that. And her uh, relative, Mordecai, says, you can do that. And you will save yourself. And yet you won't. He challenges her, right? Now think about this, right? What she does is she could have saved herself, preserved her power, and yet she lets it all go. She lowers herself. She actually identifies with a very oppressed people, right? Think about this. In this world where masculinity is viewed as bread earning, you know, uh, and sexual oppression, sexual prowess, that's masculinity today, power, that's the king of Persia. That's Esther's husband. And women were considered low in status, having no voice. Esther is able to work in a world to demonstrate courage and empathy, power and humility. So the Bible can't be about women being weaker. The Bible can't be about women being lesser. Esther becomes a savior. And if anything, it's Mordecai and Haman, the other, the other men, the male entities in the book, they're the ones who actually are powerless. They look like they have some power. They, they, they're powerless. What does that mean? It means that the husband is not always the bread earner. That's not where masculinity is derived. The wife isn't always barefoot and pregnant. We, we hear that, right, in the old days, right? The wife, the, the wife isn't always the housewife, right? That's not where femininity is always derived. Those stereotypes were actually only born a few hundred years ago. Do you know that? During the uh, post-industrial age, you know, women started to stay at home because the ability to garner greater income in the home, it exponentially grew in a household. And so both husband and wife used to work. They worked the fields. They later on worked in factories. And after, once the industrial age kind of took off, husbands started to work more, regulated hours, pay went up, wives kind of took a step back. That's only a couple hundred years. The Bible goes beyond place, beyond geography, beyond time, all places, all times. Look at Proverbs 31. Right? A wife of noble character. Without going into that text a whole lot, what does it say about that woman? The wife does it all. She invests. She's strategic. She knows exactly where to place her earnings. That means she's calculated. But she also sews and she cooks. She raises children. And because of all the things that she does, People look at her husband and they say, that is a great man. That's an amazing woman. That's what they say. Biblical femininity. It has nothing to do. There's no stereotype. They can do it all. So it's not about what you do. Because of the gospel, there's tremendous freedom, tremendous range to explore the heights of femininity, to explore the heights and the depths of masculinity. In, the, in dimensions that the modern world cannot account for, cannot encapsulate, how do you do it? How do you accomplish this? That's the mystery. It's our last point. In verse 32, Paul says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in his relationship with his church. What's a profound mystery? That two opposite entities that two completely opposing chemicals, that when they come together, they become a whole new molecule. That two themes and sub-themes, counter-themes, when they come together and they undercurrent each other, they become a beautiful piece of music. 
That's someone completely opposite of you, someone totally unlike you. The goal is not to make them like you. That's not the goal. The goal is to harness the beauty of who they are and enable the other person to discover more of who they really are through you. Adam, when he sees Eve, this is bone of my bone. You are a part of me. I didn't even realize this. That's what he says. They complete you. They teach you what it means to love. They teach you what it means to submit. That's because that's what happens when you're joined with Christ. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Jesus, Christ, and his church. When you become joined with Christ, you learn about genuine love. You learn about genuine submission. On one hand, marriage isn't give and take. You know, it's not about compromises. and give, I mean, there are compromises, sure, but it's not about give and take. If anything, we've established over the weeks that marriage is about giving and giving and feeding and nurturing. But on the other hand, marriage is about cleansing. When you clean yourself, you get dirty, right? It's one of the, we said that it's one of the most private things that you could ever do, if you think about it, is to clean yourself. Nobody past a certain age in your life actually cleans you. But you know, when you get older, and as you get older, eventually you become incapable of doing that. Somebody has to clean you. Who's it going to be? It's your spouse, you see? So your wife will clean you, and that means that they will look at your soul, and it will tell you where you're foolish, and it will tell you, and they will challenge you and conflict with you. That means that Husband and wife, they're cleansing each other, leading each other, teaching each other to present the other person, to present their spouse as radiant before God, holy and blameless. Marriage, if friendship sharpens, we always say, man, my friend sharpens me. A good friend will sharpen you. The Bible says iron will sharpen iron. Then your wife, if he, if your husband, your wife, if they are your best friend, will they not sharpen you even more, even more thoroughly because they will know all the areas where you are dull. They will know all the areas where you need to be sharpened. How else are you going to keep each other from being pulled into seeking identity through your work, through your gifts, or becoming tyrannical through your works and through your gifts? How else are you going to do that? Look at Jesus. Look to Christ. He is the perfect embodiment of masculinity and femininity. Only Jesus. Jesus is our perfect representative. Jesus never used his gifts to fulfill himself. Never. He could have. Almighty power. And yet he never uses his gifts to please himself. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the wilderness. 40 days. Hasn't eaten. He's fasting. He's hungry. And Satan approaches him. The enemy approaches him and says, Turn these stones to bread. In other words, what? Gratify yourself. Indulge for once. Fulfill yourself for once. That's how you are. That's what it means to be in this world. Get power and you have power. That's worldly masculinity, right? What does Jesus say? He says, no. He submits himself to the ministry of the word and he says, man does not live by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan tempts him to bow and worship him. He says, if you do this now, I can give you all of this. And you don't even have to go to the cross. You don't ever have to suffer. Think about that. That's power. You will be self-fulfilled. That's worldly masculinity. Jesus says, no. You know why? Because Jesus didn't come to fulfill himself. Jesus came to fulfill God's word. 
Jesus didn't come to save himself. Jesus came to save others. And that's the third temptation. Satan says, I want you to jump from here because even the Bible, this Bible that you've submitted yourself to, says that angels will come and rescue you. So you don't even strike your heel against the ground. And Jesus says, no, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Wholly submissive to the world. Wholly submissive to the word of God. That's Jesus. And it's because Jesus Christ didn't come to subvert God. He's one with God. The perfect union. Holy union. The holy trinity. Jesus Christ did not come to subvert God. Jesus did not come to replace God. Philippians chapter 2 says what? That Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he submitted himself. He became obedient to God. Obedient even to death. Death on a cross. Perfect submission. Look at the femininity of Jesus. Look at the obedience and submission of Jesus. Almighty power, yet runs his power through his Father so that the glory of God, God himself will be exalted and his glory would extend in advance throughout the world. And yet at the same time, look at his restraint. Look at his, look, he, he is coming as king. And he came as king and there, what does he do? You see him loving his people. You see him relational. He came as a person so he can touch. And does he just hang out with, with the educated and the elite? That's worldly masculinity. There are people in this room. That's what they're about. They want to connect with the people that are in. They want to connect with the people at the top. Jesus Christ says, no, I'm going to connect with my people. And I'm going to seek them. And I'm going to save them. Biblical masculinity seeks the advancement of others beyond themselves. That's what he does. And so you see perfect masculinity perfect femininity, all represented in Christ. And what you see here is that he didn't come to, to gain power. He didn't come to, to subdue us in that way, to subvert us in that way. He came to give power, to give strength, to run his power through others so that they would be enabled and furthered. It's an amazing thing. Look at the beautiful masculinity and femininity as represented in Christ. And he didn't come to just save himself, but he came to suffer. He came to die. He came to help the church because of his love. The perfect human being, Jesus Christ, perfectly demonstrating courage and humility, help and sacrifice. Perfect masculinity, perfect femininity all in one. And salvation didn't come because Jesus came to indulge himself. He came to sacrifice himself. He didn't come to fulfill himself or preserve himself, but to lose himself. And so on the cross, what happens? Jesus Christ hungers and he thirsts and he suffers. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now I have given up my identity. And this incredible union that I so deeply served and loved and, and was for, and I ran my power through, and now I've lost power because the Father has forsaken me. And the Trinity has been ripped apart on the cross, and Jesus Christ says, now I'm lost. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh has been torn from me, and I'm incomplete, and I'm lost. 
And so he gives up his identity and he submits, perfect submission. And he's just suffering and toiling and laboring and bleeding on the cross and he dies. And, and he says, Jesus Christ lost himself. Why? So that we could find ourselves in him. Jesus Christ says, I'm forsaken. Why? So we would be remembered, we would be known. And when you find yourself in Christ, that means that there's no more need to find your fulfillment in your own works, men, husbands, women. And, and because you're known by God, because Jesus Christ was forsaken by God, there's no need to find yourself through your relationships. Your relationships take a whole new meaning. It's not to fulfill you. It's really to fulfill others, you see. Tremendous power there. There is the courage. But there's also there's your validation that you need. There's the love that you've been looking for all your life. You're known by God. You're known by the Father. There's the identity that you need to rest in. Man, the only way that you're going to work, the only way you're going to work in a way that the work won't rule you is how? You have to trust that it's, it's finished. The work is finished on the cross. You don't have to save yourself. Make yourself known. Make yourself acceptable or, approv- or provable that way. Women, the only way that relationships, your desire for your husband will not rule you is to trust that you are loved even deeper, more deeply than you could ever imagine and know. And that's Jesus Christ suffering. Look at him suffering and dying and bleeding for you. That's the love that you're looking for. That's the love you've been looking for all your life, the gospel. Wives, this is the only way you're going to ever be able to submit to your husbands. Jesus Christ became obedient even to death on a cross. Husbands, this is the only way you're going to be able to sacrifice and give up your dreams and your vision for, for the sake of your, loving your wife. Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame for you. And when the wife submits and the husband loves, that's the dance. That's the dance, you see. It's a supernatural oneness that happens. It's a deeper oneness than you can ever experience in your life. Look to Christ. He is your help. He nurtures. He cleanses. He shapes. Learn what that means. You have to first learn what that means. You have to first learn what it means to submit wholly to him. Become a bride of Christ, men and women. Become a bride of Christ first. Then you will begin to discover biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. Let's pray.